uh, where we left off just two weeks ago, and uh, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, Acts 2, 42, that one verse, and uh, I wonder could we all read it together tonight, Acts 2 and verse 42, we'll just pray before we do that, amen. Father, we just ask tonight for your help, for your anointing, and Lord, that you would speak to us, instruct us in your way. Lord, strengthen us tonight and strengthen your church through the preaching of your word tonight. Lord, we thank you. It is precious. It is the truth. It is inspired. Thank you, Lord. It has stood the test of time through every generation. It's reliable. And Lord, tonight we pray you would anoint it, quicken it to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Acts chapter 2, 42. Just read that one verse all together if we could. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I'll just recap if I, I could just, um, just to go back just a couple of weeks ago just so we can uh, gather together from verse uh, 14 through to 36 and then 38 through uh, to 39, we see this great message of Peter the Apostle. And then in verse 40, it tells us that with many other words that he testify, exhort, and say, save yourselves from this untoward uh, generation. And we see there's a great influx of souls here in the church. There's the initial 120 that were in the upper room. And then by the great power of the Holy Ghost and through the preaching of the gospel, 3,000 souls are swept in to the kingdom of God. And how we need again the Holy Spirit that moved on in those days to move in the days in which we are in. It says in verse 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What a day! Think of the rejoicing in heaven. If it says all heaven rejoices over one, it must have been some rejoicing over 3,000. The power and the reality of the Holy Ghost moving in that first and early church. They, it says, then they, verse 41, and then in verse 42 says, and they, it is referring to this influx of new converts who needed to grow and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and Spirit-filled men and women established a pattern that would cause the church to be strengthened, to be strong, and to grow in the faith. The Amplified says that they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine, which is the teaching of God's Word. We'll look at that tonight. Fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers, they were continually and faithfully devoted themselves to these four things, these four pillars that we'll look at over these Wednesday, night, Wednesday nights. We'll all agree that this was a Spirit-filled church, and this was a Spirit-led church. This was a Spirit-filled church. If we read in Acts chapter 2, it says that the whole place was filled, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So they were filled with the Holy Ghost, as was promised by the Lord. And I believe that God had fulfilled His Word in their lives. And this is a Spirit-filled church and a Spirit-led church. And so now they're going to obey. The, the Spirit-filled or Spirit-led believer will obey the Word of God. That If they don't, there's a contradiction. 
To be spirit-filled is to be yielded to God's word. The Amplified tells us they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to these four things. They were faithful to it. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 4 and 2, we looked at it just a couple of weeks ago, but I want to just pull back if I could into it again. 1 Corinthians 4 and 2, if you turn back over to that uh, 1 Corinthians 4 and 2, or turn over to it, it says this, just this note of faithfulness. It says, Moreover, it is required in stewards, servants of the Lord, that a man or a woman be found, what does it say? Faithful. We just, just say that word, faithful. This is what God looks for. He's not looking so much our talents, our gifts, our ability, our intellectual advancements, or whatever that may be, or all our technology of our day, what we have. Thank God for all those things. But the key in it all is God is looking for people to be faithful. Just to be faithful. That can be, that's in the ability of every single one of us, regardless of who we are or where we're from or our educational background. Whether we have exams or we don't, thank God tonight it doesn't depend on those things. That we are faithful to the Lord. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, Timothy and uh, Paul instructing uh, the young servant Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. This is what Paul says uh, to, to, to Timothy, his son. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2 1, verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, and the same commit thou, what does he say? Commit them to faithful men. And what will they do? They shall be able to teach others. So the work of God was to be committed to, here's the criteria, one of the key criteria for God's work is men that are faithful. And then they will also be able to teach others. So tonight we'll look at pillar number one, uh, the apostles' doctrine. If you go back over in the Acts chapter 2, And verse 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and a breaking of bread, and in prayers. Pillar number one, a church needs pillars. A church needs pillars. Pillars support a structure. Without pillars in this building, in the natural, this this whole thing comes down. The roof comes down on us. So you need pillars. Pillar number one, crucial, essential. The teaching of the apostles. Men who were appointed by God to birth and to establish and to instruct the early church. Ultimately, their teachings would become the canon of Scripture. 27 books of the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a wee form here tonight. Don't worry, you don't have to fill anything in. But I hope you brought your glasses. Brent, would you and David, would you pass them out? It's going to be on the screen too. It's very small, but you can keep it in your Bible. And we're going to just have a wee overlook at the New Testament. These are 27 books. The canon of Scripture inspired by God. And here we see the breakdown of these books. 27 books, everyone got a page. You'll be able to see it better probably on the page. But the top diagram is the New Testament books and the breakdown in their categories. So first of all, you'll see over on the left-hand side, You'll see the books 
Like we're concerning, have we got enough? Sorry, if we could share. Everyone got one? That's good. All right. So here we have it, the 27 books of the New Testament. Over on the left-hand side, you'll see in your diagram the books that concern the historical accounts, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're known as the Gospels, plural, but really it was one Gospel. There's only one Gospel, and there's not four Gospels, but this one Gospel and the four accounts of these four men appointed by God to bring the account of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also the book of Acts, which is an historical account of the birth of the church, right up to chapter 12, and then in the chapter 13, the missionary endeavors of Paul the Apostle as the church began to move beyond Jerusalem. Then you see Paul's letters there, the early and the latter letters during the missionary journeys, Galatians right through down to Romans, and then the latter you see his imprisonments, the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, Philippians. Then during his release, 1 Timothy and Titus. Then the second imprisonment, he pens 2 Timothy. Then you have the general. Now, people will debate over who penned Hebrews. I personally believe it was Paul the Apostle. So we see that largely most of the New Testament books are penned by the Apostle Paul. So you have the general epistles, the James, Hebrews, right down, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Uh, John, and then you have prophecy as found in the book of Revelation. These are the 27 books of the New Testament. We all know 27 books, and we're very familiar with them. If you go to the next one, just the, the, a panorama of the, of the New Testament, you'll find, and this is, the reason why I'm doing this, it's important, how did we end up with 27 books? Who made the decision that we have 27 books in the New Testament? How did that come about? Did it just happen? And so it's important to know because when you start to move through in the church history and the birth of the Catholic Church around the third century and the church councils then that subsequently came about, the church councils, the ecumenical councils, there were seven in total, but they began to make decisions, and it was the Catholic Church at that time that was influencing the direction of those councils that said that basically people tell you that this is where the decisions were made, what was in the, in the New Testament. And that's wrong, because then that gives credit to the council, and the councils also made other decisions concerning the teaching that came out of the Catholic Church. And we'll see this in this, this little diagram here in the panorama of the New Testament. So you see the dates in which most would agree, most theologians would agree, the writing of the books and the time. So AD 50, we see the first book was James around AD 50. On the top line, you're going to find out it was written at the time of the Jerusalem conference. And then as we work through that, you'll see the reason why some of these books have been penned. For example, the next one, was to instruct believers in the Christian life. First and Second Thessalonians was around A.D. 52 and 53. And so you work your way through, right through all the 27 books. The last book to be penned was by the Apostle John around A.D. 96. So all 27 of these books were penned by 
an apostle, which is very important, that gives it authority. There was just a few that weren't, but there was a direct line or direct link in that. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, for example, there was a direct link into that apostolic age. So right through, we see these books are penned. We know there's other letters that were written at that time by the apostles, but by the end of the first century, these 27 books were in circulation. They were already inspired by the Holy Ghost, written by the apostles, circulated amongst the church, and most notably, by the end of the first century, these books would already have been seen as authoritative, authentic, inspired, and came together as the authentic New Testament as we know it now. It wasn't until 300 or 400 AD that these books came about to be canonized. It was in the first century, and Scripture bears that out. So it's important to know that tonight. This is how we got our books. So we're going to just look at that uh, just for a moment. And 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Let's look just at the Word of God that we have a privilege to have tonight. I'm going to go through some verses concerning God's Word. That was just a brief oversight on how we got these 27 books and the order in which they came. But in 2 Timothy 3.16, I want us to read these verses together because what we have sitting on our knee, if you have a Bible on your knee tonight, this is God's Word. This is the complete canon of Scripture. All 66 books are God-breathed, God-inspired, and they've been preserved by God through all the generations. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's God's living word. It's very important. This is everything. Everything. Everything else may fail, but this will never fail. Never fail. Through every generation, through the dark ages, through a millennium of dark ages, it was God's word that sustained his people. And it was through God's word that a reformation was birthed. And we sit on the good of it tonight of what a man stood for a few hundred years ago or more than that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Let's read it together, the two verses, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture... All 66 books from Genesis right through the Revelation we read here is given by the inspiration of God. God breathed. The Spirit of God moved upon men and they with pens and parchments began to write as the Spirit of the living God came upon them. Throughout the generations, these men, these men, as God would move upon them, began to write. If you just think of it, I was just trying to think of it, some of them in dungeons and prisons and the darkest of night, and yet the Holy Ghost is coming upon them. Paul in a dirty prison, and there he's sitting there, and the Holy Ghost comes down into that prison comes upon the Apostle Paul and as the inspiration and the quickening of God and the unction of the Holy Spirit's upon him, as he begins to write, we're sitting with these epistles on our knee tonight. God was writing to us through a man in a prison 2,000 years ago. 
In 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 19, 2 Peter, I'm just focusing in on this word tonight. Remember the word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 2 Peter 1 and 19, verse through to verse 21. Let's read it together. We could. 2 Peter 1, 19, verse 19 through to 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well, take ye heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Isn't that powerful? Isn't it awesome? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Holy men of God speak as they were moved. We are looking here that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And we also see that all scripture has come from God himself. It hasn't come from man. It wasn't man's reasoning or man's idea. It was birthed of God. It was the Holy Spirit coming upon a man. And so it's important that that is where we find the inspiration of the Word of God. It was God-breathed. It was God-inspired. Now, what does the Bible say about the Word of God? If you turn over to Psalm 138, Psalm 138, I believe it is. Psalm 138. Psalm 138. Let's read uh, the first two verses, if we could here. Psalm 138. The first two verses. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple. And praise thy name for thy loving kindness. And for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Friends, that's awesome. He has magnified his word even above His very name. There's power in the word of God. It's a living word. It's not a dead letter. It's a living word. The Bible tells us in the beginning, God. Right at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God said, Let there be light. And what happened? There was light. Light, the power of God. When we get over in the John, the Gospel of John, the account of John of the Gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 1, just the first five verses, if we read it together, John chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was manifest. In Him was life. 
And the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. In the beginning was the Word. The Word of God, that's Jesus. He is that Word. Now, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Jesus said these words. If you turn over, I want you to follow these verses. We're just focusing in on the Word of God tonight. This pillar that's essential in the church, and especially in the days we are living in, people will be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. I believe that's a lack or an understanding of God's Word or a lack of dedicating themselves to the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 4 and 4, Jesus said, let's read it together. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Our very life, our spiritual life is absolutely solely dependent upon the word of the living God. God inspired word. In Psalm 119, there's a couple of verses we'll pick out there, not them all. Psalm 119 verse 11. If you turn back to it, Psalm 119 and verse 11, and then we're going to go over to verse 105. Psalm 119 verse 11, and then Psalm 119 verse 105. Are we there? Verse 11. Let's read it together. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I may not sin against thee. The word of God is going to keep you from sin. The word of God is going to keep you from sin. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. This word will keep a man or a woman from sin. It's God inspired. It's our daily bread. It's our food. It's from God. It's written even above his name, magnified above his name. This is the word of the living God. It's the canon of scripture. You know, the old Latin word for canon is the rod. I'm going to tell you something, friends. Everything might be going that way or that way or some other way. But this word, I tell you, friends, you hold to this word. That word's going to take us right through every storm. And it's going to take us right on home to glory. The word of the living God. When everything's going wrong, when the storms are coming in, when the waves are beating in, when the winds are blowing, when the discouragements come. I'm going to tell you, friend, the only thing that's going to comfort us is the word of the living God. We've got to hold on to it. We've got to believe it. We've got to stand on it. We've got to pray about it. We've got to sing about it. We've got to preach about it. And sometimes you've got to keep singing about it until it gets into your spirit. Until it gets down into your soul. That word, that word is going to keep me from sin. Psalm 119 and verse 105. This is going to guide us all the way through this life. It says, let's read it together. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and it's a light unto my path. Isn't that awesome? Just think about it, friends. Let's read that again, if I could, just for a moment. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. You know it's personal there? Did you notice that? It's my path. It's yours, my path, my feet, and my path. That's the word of God. It is a dark day, but there's a light. And that light's going to guide us through the darkness. And do you know what that is? It's God's word. 
is going to guide us through the dark times, the tough times, the difficult times, times where we just don't know where to turn, turn to God's word. When they pulled that book out and had been lost in the temple, they pulled that book out and they blew the dust of it and they opened it up and they set that at the centre of that congregation again. I'm going to tell you, friends, revival came. The word of the living God, the word of God. We are a great and privileged people. We really are. Amen. Amen. You're maybe not convinced of that tonight, but we really are. We have a Bible. We have a Bible. Actually, we're probably more than one, don't we? Anybody got more than one Bible? I don't know many Bibles I have because Frank gave me all his. Frank collected Bibles. He used to work in a wee bookshop. He collected all different types of Bibles. He's one great big Bible. It's 27 translations of, of the Bible. So every verse you have about 27 different verses it's great because you get maybe when you don't understand the big words and you get it expounded for you we've got bibles bible we have a school full of bibles friends for us to have a bible for us to have a bible men have paid a great price and in some ways in some ways for us in the western side of things, in the privileges of what we have today, it's very hard now because it seems as though, I suppose it would seem the best way to explain it would be like this. It's the typical, have you ever seen a spoiled child? child has got absolutely everything. And then when they get something else, they've lost the value of what it is to be given something that's precious. You can't depreciate it. And in some ways, in some ways, not exclusively, but in some ways, it seems like that is what the Western church seems to be like. We have everything. We have everything. I'll give you a wee tiny bit of an insight, or a wee bit of, most of you probably know this, but I, I think it's important to be reminded about it. How did we get a Bible? How did we end up with a Bible? Here's even better. How did we end up with a Bible in English? How did we get a Bible in our own language? And we all say, all of us have probably got at least half a dozen or more. I know I have more than that. How do we get a Bible? Right in the midst of the dark ages, there was a man by the name of John Whitcliffe. You've heard of him? Any, put your hand up if you've heard of John Whitcliffe. Praise the Lord. And if you haven't, make sure you listen up. John Whitcliffe was born in 1330. You're saying, where's he going tonight? What's, that got to, what's John Whitcliffe got to do with me? Friends, he's everything to do with us. We're living in the good of a man who made a stand. He was born in 1330, died in 1384. And in the year 1382, two years before his death, the Whitcliffe Bible was completed. That is, the Bible was translated into Middle English by John Whitcliffe. Before that, it wasn't in our language. The Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not just 
out for a bashing time, but we need to know these things. They didn't want the Bible in the commoner's own language. The councils have said, yes, we have a Bible, but that's for the priest, not for the peasants, not for the you and I. So we'll keep them from the Bible. But secondly, our councils, remember talking about the councils, we have made a decision that not only is the Bible, yes, we'll say it's authoritative, but secondly, what's very important is, for them, secondly, what's very important is that one also has equal authority to the Holy Bible, the Scriptures, is the church council decisions. So in other words, if the church comes up with a new doctrine, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, the council has equal right on the Scripture. Now, not only that, they brought in a third thing, that is that church tradition, that's the three things, the authority of God's Word. Yes, we'll go along with that. Number two, but the church council, they'll make a decision through the papacy. If they make a decision, then that has equal right to the authority of Scripture, and so then they can bring in other doctrines. That's how they pray for the dead. Or there's a purgatory. That's how it's come about. Number three, then, church tradition. But we have done this this way for a thousand years. Our forefathers, we go right back to Peter the Apostle. They don't, but they claim that. So then it's important. You see men like John Whitcliffe, who was born in 1330. What's he got to do with us? He believed it was essential as he began by the Spirit of God, I believe, wakened by the Holy Ghost, just like the Holy Ghost came on men of old, came upon John Whitcliffe, it was essential that the Bible was translated into English for the common man and for the common woman. He attacked then, he was a dissonant, he was a rebel, but a good rebel. He attacked the veneration of saints, the sacraments, requiem mass, transubstantiation, the existency of the Pope. He was a troublemaker amongst the Catholic Church. Thank God he was. He is seen very much as the forerunner to the whole Protestant Reformation. Remember the Protestant Reformation. On the 31st of October, the world will celebrate Halloween. On the 31st of October, I'll celebrate my wife's birthday. But I'll also celebrate it being it's Reformation Day. It's Reformation Day. A man called Martin Luther he put his 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg and brought about a reformation that we live in the good of today. After Whitcliffe's death, this is what it tells us. After his death, now you just think about this for a moment. Here's a man, he was against most of what the Catholic Church stood for. He believed it was essential to get this book into our language so we could read it. The Council of Constance on the 4th of May, 1415. Now remember, Whitcliffe died in 1384. So this is 30-odd years later, right? You think, did this man stir the devil's nest? Listen to this. On the 4th of May, 1415, they banned his writings. They excommunicated him retroactively. Think about it. The council decreed that Withcliffe's books should be burned. Listen to this. His body remains should be dug up from consecrated ground. This order was by Pope Martin, was carried out in 1428, 
Westcliff's corpse was dug up, burned, and his ashes cast in to the river Swift. You think he stirred the devil's nest? Why would the devil be so against and stirred up against the man who believed what? Get the book into the man's language. Because if people begin to read this book, something's going to happen. Why? Because it's God-inspired. It's God-breathed. It's God's word. Faith comes, Davy prayed it tonight, by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Without faith, we can do all the works all day. We can climb over mountains, pay all our penance. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Men will get saved. Men will be delivered. Men will be raised up. Men will be healed. It's the word of the living God. The man, William Tyndale, picked up the baton. 1494 to the 6th of October, 1536. Now listen to this. This is was betrayed by a man called Henry Phillips. He was seized in Antwerp in 1535, held in the castle of Vildorf near Brussels, tried and charged of heresy in 1536, was condemned to be burned to death despite Thomas Cromwell's intercession on his behalf. They strangled Tyndale to death while he was tied to the stake. Then they burned his body. His final words spoken at the stake with a fervent seal and a loud voice were reported as, Lord, open the eyes of the king. Know what happened? Just a couple of years later, we got the great Bible. Henry VIII gave us the great Bible and put it in all the churches. A man being strangled at the stake. The devil hates the word of God. The devil hates the word of God. Why? We live... Such a privileged people. In 1611, 54 scholars produced the King James Bible. It is abused, mocked. A few years ago in a Pentecostal conference in Northern Ireland, people at the Pentecostal conference began to mock the King James Bible. They mocked it. Men died and shed their blood that we'd have it. It's tragic. As well as from translations that descended from this, one estimate suggests that the New Testament and the King James Version, the 27 books we're looking at tonight, 83% of it is Tyndale's work, and the Old Testament, 76%. His translation of the Bible was first to be printed in English and become a model for subsequent English translators. Brothers and sisters, this is my Bible. And it's precious. It's precious. I know we've got modern, I understand that. But there's something about it. There's something about the sound of a page. You might say that you're a bit strange. It doesn't really matter what it is. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. Men shed their blood. They could have this book. 
shed their blood that we can have this book. What a price has been paid. In this world tonight, not in the Western, there is a huge demand for Bibles. Bible societies have told us, and those who have traveled, Stephen and the team and others, in China, the demand for Bibles is outstripping the supply. They can't keep up with it. Brian and Carol just back recently are bringing some Bibles across that border. They're hungry for God's word. We've heard testimonies of them having one page, one page. I've got one page out of a book and 40 to 50 believers meeting together in secrecy, just reading over that one page. So hungry, so desperate for God's holy word. In North Korea, I just heard recently through one of the Bible societies, there is an unbelievable demand for Bibles. Praise God. You think in that regime, believers in prison, we heard from Andy not so long ago about the 1907 revival there where God swept from the north right down across that whole country then how the whole thing was shut down. And we've been praying for many years like with other believers for that whole regime to collapse. Friends, and I believe it's going to collapse or it's going to change. Something's going to happen. But God's going to open the floodgates. But there's a desire and a hunger for the word of God all across Africa. Bibles. You hear from revival movement, that great and mighty work just up the road from us there. All across this world, Gospels of John. Just the demand for the Word of God, the hunger for the Word of God. The desire to see the Gospels go out. Shiploads, shiploads and containers leave this land. A wee, a wee man that's from East Belfast that started with a shoebox. It's awesome. By faith, believing there's something in the living word, God inspired God's word to get it out and to get people reading it. I can remember sitting with Pastor Dupe years ago when I first heard a revival movement. He says, take me to this address when he first came here a long time ago. And it was down in Red Car Street at the time. I had never heard of it. Never heard a revival movement. Walk down, walk through the doors. All the presses are going. Samuel Adams was there at the time. And the old man was still alive. He was in the office. And Pastor Dupe, they walked in. Walked into the office. Samuel Adams says, sit down. He says, what can we do for you? And Pastor Dupe, they says, I need, I need Bibles. I need Gospels of John. Samuel says, how many would you like? Oh, he says, 100,000. I near fell on the table. 100,000. He says, just wrote it down. He says, we'll have it to you in six weeks. Demand for God's word. Vishnu just sent us a wee letter there a couple of days ago for the first time a group in Nepal. He's translated the Gospel of John. First time that this particular tribe of people have ever had the Word of God in their language. We've had it for hundreds of years. For the first time, and he's heading to the mountains. He'll be there for six weeks distributing thousands of Gospels of John for the first time in their language. For the first, this Gospel will be preached in all the world. Amen. And then the end will come. Yep. There is a demand for the Bible. 
China in particular, the demand is greater than supply or hunger for the word of God. It's God's word. It's divinely inspired. It's divinely preserved. It's been written in English for us. It's been translated with a great price. It is ours with a great liberty in the English tongue. Tells us of the first church. They gave themselves constantly and faithfully to God's word. It was everything. I think the greatest grievance in the Western church today is the lack of appreciation of what we have. Let me just tell you two simple things about God's word, what we should do. Just two things. I'll close with this. Just two things. What are we to do with God's word? I believe the first thing we need to do is believe it. Just believe it. Just believe it. From Genesis, the revelation, I believe this is God's word. You believe it. Six days God created to him. I believe it. You believe he's coming back again? I believe it. You believe a man died on a cross and rose again on the third day and he never sinned and he was born of a virgin? Friends, I believe it. You believe he died on that cross and shed his blood and through his blood every sin that you've committed, you're forgiven, you're cleansed and you're washed? Friends, I believe it tonight. You believe that through his atoning death and by his stripes that we're healed? Friends, I believe his word. You believe he's coming back again. You believe in a heaven? Do you believe in a hell? I believe in both. Do you believe in a literal hell? I believe in a lake of fire. An everlasting lake of fire that's never put out. Oh, not too sure about that. Friends, the first thing about this book is I believe it. I just simply believe it. The second thing is, here's two things we're going to do with this book. Number one, we have to believe it. Number two, we have to obey it. Believe it. And with everything within us, we have to obey it. We do not believe it if we will not obey it. We don't have faith because we have so many then do not do what the book says. Faith is hearing the word of God and the works of faith are manifested in lives that obey it. James 2 and 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But will thou, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and and by works was faith made perfect? Here's perfect faith. Jesus met people with little faith. He also met people with great faith. The Bible says of Abraham, he had perfect faith. The scripture was fulfilled when he said, Abraham believed God. It was imputed in unto him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. In Genesis 26, it says there was a famine in the land because the first famine that was in the days of Abraham and Isaac went on to 
Abimelech, king of the Philistines, into Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with thee and bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thee thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. Give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And verse 5 says this, Because, because that Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, Abraham, a man with perfect faith, obeyed the voice of the Lord. It tells us, by faith, in Hebrews 11 and 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place that he should go after, he received an inheritance. Is what it says. He obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. Not only are we to believe it, not only are we to believe it, but friends, we're to obey it. It's God's word. It's God-inspired. It's living bread. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It will stand the test of time. It will keep us from sin. It will direct our paths. It will lead us home. It's the rule of thumb, the blueprint, the authority in everything it's God's word. And it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We're to believe it and we're to obey it. It's been tried. It's been tested. And friends, I want to tell you, it's went through every test. Let's cling to his word. Let's walk in his word. Let's believe him even in these days. His word hasn't changed. Neither is he. And neither has the blessed Holy Ghost. Let's believe him tonight. Let's obey him. But let's thank God more than anything for the privilege we have to have a Bible in our own language. Think about it, friends. To have a Bible in our own language. We're blessed. We're blessed tonight. Let's stand together. Amen.